Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Hey, welcome everybody. Uh, we're continuing our series in Galatians and I just would ask if we could take a minute and pray. Lord, I would pray that you could tune our hearts to your word, that you'd open my lips. Lord, you, you are God who loves us beyond knowledge. And I, and I pray that our lives would respond to you, that we would be people who are forgiving and gracious and loving and serving, and, and um, that you would create this church and, and us as individuals in your image. Jesus, I ask this in your name. Amen? Amen. So Galatians is an interesting book. If you know anything about this book, there's one big question that Paul is trying to to convince the Galatians. He's trying to deal with here. And how we understand salvation and how the Apostle Paul understood salvation to work was it's believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Right? It's not believe, do these good deeds, enough good deeds equal salvation, right? It's not have this surgery for the men or whatever it is. It's it's believe and you shall be saved. Now, we're like light bulbs. When we believe, when we truly believe, we get plugged into God and the light shines out. It's a byproduct of our relationship with Christ and works are truly a byproduct of our relationship with Christ. The reformers would say works are necessary but not for salvation. There's this thing where like works will happen in the hearts of those who are truly saved. If you plant an apple tree, what will you get? Apples, hopefully, right? And and a pear tree, pears. And somebody who's saved produces works. And you grow into them, don't you? I heard somebody critique one of my favorite uh, guys from history, John Newton. And he's like, well, it took him a while to come to this. And I'm thinking, yeah, because he had to grow. You know, you you don't begin the Christian life fully formed, right? We grow. But how do we grow? You know, some people think, well, I'm saved by grace through faith, and then I grow by continuing to work, right? I work, and and that's how I grow. And and on one hand, I see what people are talking about. On the other hand, have you ever noticed how your actions always are, like, underpinned by a belief? They're underpinned by some kind of belief. Like, you do something because you believe something was talking to somebody recently who wanted to be more nice and loving and kind. And then as we talked, they experienced what I've experienced many times. You know, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not living up to my own standards. And, and when you don't like yourself, it's hard to be nice to other people, isn't it? Right? It's, it's, it, it can, it can kind of come out. And when you change your belief about yourself... When you have self-compassion and you're kind to yourself, all of a sudden you, you're kinder to others. Like you change your underlying belief and your works change. I believe Christians always need to be saying, what's the thing behind that behavior? 
What's the thing that's moving me? So Paul is serious about these guys getting it right. And you know, I've noticed in our culture, there's a lot of people who want a relationship, but they want a relationship without a commitment. You know what I'm talking about. Because commitment's hard, commitment is cost, right? I want a relationship, but I don't want commitment. And many times we treat God that way too, don't we? We're like, God, I believe in you just this much, but I'm not fully trusting in you with everything. Not my life, not my finances. You heard Ben confess like a big trust statement, right? And we're like, well, Lord, I want all the warm fuzzies, but I don't want any of the hardship or difficulty or anything else that can come along with believing in you. And we treat God like a friend with benefits. And it's just kind of an overflowing of our culture. Well, this chapter begins this way, and Paul says this. I mean that an heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, but, but he's under guardians and managers until date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So we might have and receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. So you no longer, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir. It's like, he begins by saying, listen, if you were born into a very, very rich family, Let's say you are the only child of the founder of Amazon. And you're the founder of Amazon, you know, tragically dies and leaves everything to you. But you're five years old. You know, what are, you're going to have people who are over you, who are managing you, even though, in a sense, you are much greater than them. I'm not, I'm not, you know what I'm saying about that. I'm not saying that they're better or anything, but I'm saying that person has a lot a lot of wealth coming their way. But the people are managing them. And this is what he's saying. At one time, you were under this law. You had these managers. But now things are different. And he says, in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles. Some people said you could translate that almost the ABCs of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law... To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is a funny thing. He starts talking about this law. And if you go a chapter before this, Paul says the law was the schoolmaster, the schoolmaster, the teacher to bring us to Christ so we might be justified by faith. What is he talking about? I, I, it's hard to, to get this. He's like, how does the law teach us to be justified by faith? I mean, I, the law is an interesting thing. It was, it, it was given over time. You read about it in the books of Moses, and, and you, you have 613 commandments. 
that were given to ancient Israel, and they're all in the first five books of the Bible. But they weren't just one 600 commandment dump. They, they came over time, and if you read it, they came in a narrative. They came in a story. So do you remember when the first laws were given? Yeah, Moses. And you know what happened? God gives laws to Moses, and you know what's happening down at the bottom of the mountain while God's giving the laws to Moses? Yeah, they're breaking all the laws, right? And if you read it, there's this pattern. God gives laws, the people break it. God gives more laws, the people break it. God gives more laws, the people break it. And at the end of Moses' life, there's this, this talk he gives to the people, and he says, I know you're not going to be faithful and you're going to break the laws. Like he, like he knows this. God's given all these laws and the humans, the people, keep breaking it. And we're bound up under that teacher. And Paul would say, yet these laws teach us about justification by grace through faith. How does that work? Well, have you ever tried your hardest to do your best to be the best person you are? How long can you keep that up? I mean, some people have great self-control, right? Some people um, have great self-control, and they can, they can keep things up. I think the Apostle Paul had great self-control. And that's why when you read the New Testament, he talked all about covetousness. Because he knew, I might look good on the outside, but I'm rotten on the inside. Right? He couldn't control his heart. He couldn't control that. And, and I think... The way has to be trod for us. The way has to be walked, even for us now, that the law teaches about justification. When I think of my life, I was pretty rebellious as a, as a youth. And uh, I, I know that when I came to Lutheran West, Jim picked some of the hardest to reach kids. And he wrote their names on papers, right? Right, Joel? Right? Uh, and he handed them out to teachers and said, pray for these kids. Right? Pray for them. And I know my name was on one of those pieces of paper, right? And voted probably most likely not to succeed in high school. And, and yet the Lord got a hold of me. And you know what I did? I tried my hardest to be the best, to be good enough. And I failed. And what did I have to discover? I'm justified by grace through faith. Do I want to serve God? Do I want to be good? Yes, I do. But... I am justified by grace through faith. My identity isn't found in how good I am or how bad I am anymore. It's found in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? The law, trying to keep all the rules, whatever they are, teaches you that. Here's the problem. You may say, well, I'm not a Christian. I don't really believe in this kind of stuff. Everybody struggles with the law. Who are some of the most judgmental people? Non-smokers. <laughs> right? Former, there it is, forgive me. Former smokers. Former smokers, right? Oh, how dare you? You're like, wait, a year ago you were one of them, right? Or somebody loses like a hundred pounds and then they're judging all the people and you're like, stop it. But this is how this is how the law works in our life. We feel really good when we're keeping whatever rules they are. And I don't care what they are. When I was in sales, there was a sales law. You'd go to a sales meeting and you hit all your points or you were over your bogey or whatever it was. And you got awards and accolades. And yes, I'm, I'm going to tell you guys all how to do it. But then the next meeting, you're not there. And now what do you do? 
right? And this is what happens when you live by the law. You're up and down. Because nobody can keep it up in every area of their life all the time. The only person that can do it is Jesus. We're all saved by grace through faith. Scripture goes on and he goes, and, and because you are sons, God sent his spirit. This is Pentecost Sunday. The spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Can I say that this is experiential? It, it, you, Betty, say Abba, Father. You, Martin, say Abba, Father. Like this, he's talking about a real experience with the Holy Spirit. For confirmation, my verse that I had to read was, this is me, three by five card. I make it a lot harder on you, Ben. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. <sighs> that, that's all they trusted me to say. And, uh, but the Spirit was like there, right? It was over there. And I, I thought, well, you know, when you get to heaven, you just got to have the right answers to the right questions. So when I got there, all I had to say was, I'm saved by grace through faith, yet let me in because that's the deal. Right? And I knew nothing about this experience of the Holy Spirit, of having some kind of intimate relationship with Jesus. Christianity means God has put his spirit inside of you. Do you always feel it? No. But you do have an experience of the Holy Spirit. There's times of, of prayer where, where you're, you discover the beauty of God. You know, there's an old song that says, Darling, if you want me to be closer to you, get closer to me. Any, anybody remember that one? Yeah? Yeah, all the old people. Come on. Darling, if you want me. Okay. And you know, so many times it's like, Lord, I don't feel you. The Lord's like, I'm here. Do you spend any time in my word? Do you spend any time thinking about me? Do you spend any time discovering how beautiful I am? Come, I'm here. Seek me. You'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. One of the great missionaries of old, Hudson Taylor, he died, and he was a missionary in China, and they found this piece of paper in his diary, and it was well-worn, and this was his prayer. It looked like he moved it around a lot. He would pray this, Oh, Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen. More dear, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie. Boy, Lord, become more real to each of us. Help us to seek you and find you. Motivate us, Lord, because we are not naturally motivated to seek you. Holy Spirit, have your way. Well, the scripture goes on and he says, I plead with you, brothers, become more like me. For I became like you. I, I, I've done... I'm sorry, you have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, even though my illness was a trial to you. You didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Like he moves into a city and he's sick and the people, they don't go, oh, that guy brings a sickness here. You know, instead, you welcome me, what? As if an angel of God. And then he ups his ante, as if, I were Christ Jesus himself. What's happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could, you would have done so. You would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. 
So some people think Paul had some kind of eye problem. But have I now become an enemy by telling you the truth? Is this a strange way to talk? I don't know if anybody in America actually says this kind of language. I plead with you. Ben, become like me. Ben would be like, no. Right? right? I mean, look at the word. Become like me. And then he goes, I became like you. I mean, wow, what is going on here? Now, can I say that we typically do uh, imitate who we admire? Life does imitate our. My daughter watched a movie from the 70s and says, you know, you kind of reminded me of him. I'm like, yes, because I wanted to be him when I was a kid. <laughs> I like, you know, and life can imitate art. It's happening all the time. And, and so here Paul is saying kind of a funny thing, but he says, I became like you. And in another place in scripture, he says, to the Jew, I become a Jew. To the Gentile, I become a Gentile. I become all things to all people. So I may save some. And, and the point is, I, I don't make culture a hurdle. Right? I don't make... I don't make the, the things that aren't so important a hurdle. Like just move in and accept people for who they are, right? But now he's saying, become like me. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't help, as I read this verse, remember a song by Phillips, Craig, and Dean sung years ago. You, you know, um, some people grow up and they say, I wish I was like my dad. Other people, the biggest insult you can give them is to say, you're just like your mother. You're just like your father. Don't tell me which family you come from. But, <laughs> but there's this point where my kids were young and they sang this song. This guy wrote this. I think his kid's way out of college now, but he wrote it. And it goes like this. He climbed in my lap for a good night hug. He called me dad and I call him bub. His faded old pillow, his bare name poo, he snuggled up close and said, I want to be like you. I tucked him in bed and I kissed him goodnight, tripping over the toys as I turn out the light. I whispered a prayer that someday he'll see. He's got a father in God because he's seen Jesus in me. Lord, I want to be just like you because he wants to be just like me. I want to be a holy example for his innocent eyes to see. Help me be a living Bible, Lord, that my little boy can read. I want to be just like you because he wants to be like me. And I have to admit, when I would sing that song, many times I, I wanted to be a paragon of virtue. Did you ever notice that the old superheroes didn't have problems and the new ones, they've all written all these kind of problems into them, right? They're all broken people. You know, it's the deconstruction of our, of our superheroes. But I kind of had a picture of holiness that... that focused more on me instead of me forgetting about me. I think really holy people aren't thinking about themselves that much. I think they're thinking about Jesus a whole lot more. Like holiness is a byproduct of fixing their eyes on Jesus. They really don't think of themselves as holy. They really try not to really think about themselves a lot. I, I, I think holy people um, uh, holy people have a I want my life to fill other people's lives up. I, I want to sink so other people can float. I, I think holy people are cross-bearing people. Holy people embrace suffering in every day of their life. Somebody calls you, it's later at night, 
You're tired, you've had a hard day, but they need a friend. And you listen. And when you hang up an hour later, maybe 40 minutes later, you're carrying their burden. You have sunk. They are floating. Right? They're both. That's holiness. That's Christ-likeness. That, that is you looking more like Jesus. I mean, who came to this earth and sunk? Who said before the Apostle Paul, I will become like you? Jesus. And when you do that, you look more like him. He goes, and, and look at this middle section. As you know, because of an illness, so the sick guy comes to town. They don't treat him with contempt or scorn, but they look at him as higher than themselves. The sick guy. Do you see that? They're sinking. They're caring for him. They're bearing the cross. I mean, Jesus, in a sense, did pluck out, cut off his arm, cut off. Like, Jesus was cut off for us. And he's saying, if you could, you would have plucked your eyes out for me. Do you see the cross bearing in this? Do you see how they sunk and Paul floated? And Paul's like, what has happened? I thought of my mom. My mom was a prolific letter writer. One of her letters, written to me in college, really turned the course for myself as I was confused theologically, and, and it, it was so helpful and memorable. And, and she would meet you and maybe have a conversation with you and, and maybe send you a letter. Why would you met one gal from church? They had like a three-hour lunch. And then my mom wrote her a letter. And she was a letter writer. You know what she could have been doing instead of writing letters? Watching TV. There's a lot of good things on. But she suffered a little bit, didn't she? She gave of herself. And, and, and other people floated. And that's, that's the cross. There's something beautiful about that. Recently, a family member moved back into town and, and doesn't have child care for a while. And some other family members said, listen, we'll, we'll pitch in. We'll, we'll, we'll fill the gap for these weeks. And you know what they're doing? Sinking. Sinking. When a little guy gets dropped off and you're not used to having a little guy over your house early in the morning, <laughs> you sink. But you know what that other person is doing? Floating. <laughs> So many times we think of holiness as some kind of paragon of virtue, but I, I, on one hand they are, but I think you get there in a different way than many people are seeing it. I think the cross and this whole concept of the cross is something many churches, and maybe even our church, we, we can so easily miss. So we call worship singing. Paul said, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy, pleasing, acceptable to God. This is your reasonable, spiritual uh, act of worship. He's saying when you sing, others float, and you're doing it in the name of Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, you are worshiping just as much as when you're, you've got great goosebumps and you're singing from your heart to the Lord. Maybe even more. I mean, look, look at this language that that has made many of us scratch our heads. But in light of the cross and in light of you sink, others float, look what Paul said. Now I rejoice in my suffering for, the, for your sake. 
And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. You're like, what? I thought Jesus suffered enough. Why is Paul saying it wasn't enough? Why is there more suffering needed in Christ's body? Now, I don't believe Paul is saying Jesus didn't take all the punishment that we deserve on the cross. Of course he's saying that. But he's saying there's a way of living now where we sink in others' flow, where we embrace the difficulties, the trials, the suffering to help others. It's the way God made the world to work. And when he said, Lord, I want to know you, and I want to know the power of your resurrection. And then he says, and part of this, part of knowing you, Jesus, is this fellowship, koinonia, community, and this suffering. Your best life now includes suffering. That it does. Your best life now includes sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. Becoming like him in his death, so then to attain the resurrection. There's this reality that we as a church embrace, that the Apostle Paul said came so naturally to those guys when he was there with them in sickness. And now he's like, but now somehow the same message of salvation by grace through faith, you're finding offensive and, and it's not working in your life. And can I say sometimes suffering includes speaking the truth to people when they don't want to hear it? Now, let's face it. Some of us can be obnoxious. And some of us hate to speak truth because we like to be liked. That would be me. But sometimes we go, there's a cross right here. And I'm going to share this and just let the chips fall in line in as loving way as I can possible. And Paul was like, why have I become an enemy? I'm just telling you that Jesus, you don't have to add anything to what Christ has done for your salvation. You're saved by grace through faith. And then look at these words. My dear children, for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. So he uses childbirth even though he's a God. It's the mother love of God, isn't it? And the cross was childbirth in a sense for Jesus. And I had to wonder, do I pain over anybody? I mean, he's not saying like, boy, it'd be really good guys if you just got this. I mean, ladies, I've never given birth, but I was with Reggie. And she made a sound when Ben was born that I'd never heard come out of her mouth again. <laughs> and if Paul was crying out with that kind of cry for the for the image for this for the for them to embrace this way of living and thinking it's, it's like i want the image of christ in you do you have anybody in your life who prays that for you and are you anybody who prays that for other people do you cry out with passion are you moved to to say please lord Form your image in that. I'm in travail till I see that. Close with this. You probably don't know these two guys here. Anybody seen the movie Chariots of Fire from the 80s? A few of us. Really worth a watch. It's about the guy on the left, Eric Lydell. 
And, and when I was at seminary, I read this book called Shangtung Compound by that cool dude there, Langhorn Gilkey. And, and they both uh, were contemporaries of one another. And, and Langhorn Gilkey was a 20th century American theologian writer, but he encountered grace in a place that was very unexpected. As a young man, he attended Harvard University, and there he studied philosophy. And during his time there, like many college students, he lost his faith. And he began to identify as a secular humanist, someone who believes that human beings are intrinsically good, rational, and at a base level, you don't need to be concerned with God or spiritual things. And he held this view that humans can make progress and achieve a better society on their own. It was very popular, it still is somewhat popular today. Uh, after graduating from Harvard in the 1940s, he traveled to China and became an English teacher at a university. And then when World War II broke out in China, the Japanese invaded China, and everybody who was living there, they placed the Americans and other foreigners in these internment camps. They, they weren't treated well, but they were treated better than the Chinese, but the, the conditions were inhumane. And Gilkey would say that these hardships took a toll on the prisoners in the compound. And they brought out cruelty, because if there's only so much food, are you going to steal? Are you going to hoard? Are you going to keep it to yourself? How about our toilet paper shortage? Hmm. Huh? I, I bring something out in our, our present culture. Selfishness. And they, were, they were treated cruel by the captors, but they were cruel to one another. Uh, a fair number of the people in the camp were missionaries and pastors who had been rounded up and put in there. And he watched them use their religion to justify their selfishness and their greed and their self-centeredness. And in the book Shangtung Compound, he recalls the extreme disillusionment he felt with humanity. He's like, wait, I thought people were good. These are like good ministers, good people. They're not acting like good people. They're acting like selfish animals. This, this belief in innate goodness just started to wither. And yet there was Lydell, the missionary, the Scottish missionary who had been a gold medalist. This is how Gilkey describes him in Shangtung Compound. Overflowing with good humor and love for life, and with an enthusiasm and charm, he said, it is rare indeed that a person has a good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to a saint as anyone I've ever known. And their encounters drew guilty to faith. And while virtually everyone else was struggling with crushing despair, exploitation, Lydell remained, remained a constant source of light and relief and generosity. He became the self-appointed youth director of the compound, started chess tournaments, square dances, checking in, talking with people, constantly pouring out love, care to those around him, and sharing what little he had. During his stay in the compound, he began to feel unwell. And a mere two weeks after his diagnosis, he passed away from a brain tumor. But even after his death, Lydell's life stuck with his inmates. One man's sacrificial lifestyle, says Gilkey, had such a significant impact on those around him. 
we don't believe we would have psychologically survived this camp without him. The difference in Lydell's attitude and posture and care for others displayed the great difference between religion and the gospel of grace. His circumstances were every bit as bleak as those around him. He was a sinner, same as everybody else in the compound. He, he was not self-seeking. There was no pride or arrogance in him, only a deep certainty of God's love. And this belief in the love of God buoyed him up so he could extend true generosity, true love, rather than looking down on others. And in the context of a World War II prison camp, Gilkey discovered that human nature, regardless of religion or secularism, is one of pride. And that pride blinds us to God's grace. We so easily forget about the gospel. We preach a message like you're saved by right doctrine. You're saved by being a good person. You're saved by helping the poor. If you do these things, God will love you. But this attitude is entirely focused on what we do, what we can bring to God in the world. And it creates pride, intolerance, and self-righteousness. Neither religion or secularism can cure the vices of our hearts. Only the power that can overcome sin, the only power that can overcome sin, is the gospel of grace. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray for each of us that we could see you more. You pour your spirit out, this Pentecost, on this church and on us and especially on Ben. Lord, thank you for all the good gifts you give us today. Thank you that we come to you just as we are and you say, I love you. When we tell you, Lord, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. You say, I forgive you. And you welcome us back. And you don't just leave us there, Lord, in communion. You offer us tr your true self as we eat and we drink. And for that, I say thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.